Welcome to the next podcast from Millinery Info. This episode is with Dylan Warwick. Dylan has over 30 years experience in the millinery industry and has created bespoke millinery for Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II and the late Diana, Princess of Wales. Having worked with Philip Somerville, he now has his own studio in the south of London. He also provides millinery tutoring from his studio and teaches at Chateau de Mars in the southwest of France. We hope you enjoy our conversation with Dylan today. We would like to thank our Patreon podcast sponsors for making this possible. Miss Heidi Millinery, the Millinery Association of Australia, Catherine Cherry Millinery, the Hat Academy, the Essential Hat, and Louise MacDonald Milliner. You can follow the link on our website to find out how to become a sponsor yourself. Well, let's start right at the... Yeah. beginning where well, I mean my family was is a creative family yes both my my father's father my grandfather was a commercial um, illustrator yes so before they had photographs and things like that he was drawing very exact precise like graphic illustrations of products yes um, and my mother's mother was a great needlework woman and my mother wanted to go into theatrical design which my her parents didn't think was a suitable career for a young woman in the 1950s so they pushed her into teaching um, that's where she met my father who was doing teacher training and he was doing fine art and he started to do ceramics so did your mother remain creative even though she was ended always up always she was a, always making clothes and um, doing lots of needlework um, in you know our house she always in different rooms of the house she would like she would always be doing something like if it was patchwork or macrame or knitting or there's always different things going on like by the settee or in bedroom or whatever mm. there was always something so she was and she loved colours, so she was very much into textiles and things like that. So I think that's where I got a lot of my inspiration from. My sister and I were, you know, we were always very like drawing. And so later on, my sister went to art college and did graphics. And then, so it was just to assume that, well, I would do something. I always knew I wanted to do something um, creative. Uh, we weren't pushed towards being a um, solicitor or you know, mathematician or anything like that. It wasn't necessarily going to university. Did you do arts through Yes, school? I did. I went to art college and did an art foundation course where, you know, you learn to, if you're not quite sure, so you do a bit of fine art and graphics and sculpture and um, fashion. And I knew I wanted to do something in the fashion field. And I always enjoyed fashion illustration. Yes. And, and then I found that I really didn't enjoy the boring bits of fashion like the pattern cutting and it, I found it very cold working on a flat piece of paper and I, uh, when you have to grade or make alterations on a flat piece of paper yes. you it, didn't, it didn't side. work for me I had to work it if I was working on the dressmaker's dolly or the tailor's stand where I could see three-dimensionally if I was draping or pinning things on the dolly where it's three-dimensional then I could ex see exactly why if I pinned a piece over there it was going to effect and seeing the effects three-dimensionally on working with my hands with fabric um, I was like yes I can see and I really enjoyed that because 
Also, it, I suppose to a certain extent, I was a bit impatient. I wanted yes. instant results. And I always enjoyed, while we were at college in the fashion course, we would do a course designing shoes or handbags yes. or jewellery or the kids wear and things like that. And I always enjoyed um, the accessories. And I liked very much at the end of term when we'd done some various clothes to make your own accessories or stylize it for the fashion show. Yes. So completing a whole look, I really enjoyed that. But then when I left college, it all became, at that stage, we're talking about in the 1980s, yes. when computer imaging was just starting to, people didn't want pen and ink drawing like yes. the René Grove illustrations of the 1950s. They were all wanting to make it far more 21st century and using a lot of graphics and computers. So I can remember coming to London and asking various agencies for illustration work. No way. Yes. And then I found that one of the girls I'd been at college with had got a, a job in a company trimming hats. So I thought, oh, I'll have a go at that. So I went along and and as we were trained at college to take your portfolio and show this and show that, well, the woman just sort of looked at my portfolio and just said, oh, I'm going to make you into the, the next Freddie Fox and take you to Paris, <laughs> my darling. And at that stage, I didn't know about Freddie Fox, but just the idea of these sort of promises that this woman was making, I, of course, believed it. Had you grown up in London or you'd moved to London for that? I was born in London, but we moved to the countryside. So after I left college, I came back to London. Nice. I just thought, I've got to be in London. In the 1980s, London was amazing because, you know, you had all these people becoming famous like Boy George and, you know, the, the pubs and bars and the clubs in London in the 1980s were just amazing because so many young people were just being very creative and you had the punk and the new romantics and people like Stephen Jones, people like that were in the nightclubs, Moschino and Jean-Paul Gaultier and people like that, you know, you would meet these people in, in nightclubs. It was very, um, the street fashion was amazing and it was a good time to be in and around London. So I got a job at this company um, called Mitzi Lorenz. It was very strange. We only did sort of basically ready-to-wear hats, but they had different workrooms. It was all based on one floor, but it was divided into little partitions. So you yes. would have one room where you would have where all the fur hats were cut, uh, sewn together into make the fur berets. Another little shop, little workroom had machinists bonding the pieces of fabric together and top stitching it mm -hmm. and then to be blocked. Then you had a row of two or three blockers, so they mm -hmm. had the hydraulic blocks. And then you had three workrooms. One was the ready to wear workroom and there were two what we called model workrooms. And the model workroom is what people would say couture now, yes. where it was hand done. So the ready to wear was like machine blocked hats and they would just be trimming, sticking a flower on or a veiling. But I was plonked into Madame Bryson's workroom, where it's a workroom of, uh, there were six ladies in there. There's me arriving at the age of 23 or 24. And so all these ladies were in their 70s. So they had been making hats all just before the Second World War. Yes. There was a lady from Hungary, a lady from Poland, and other ladies were English. But the head of the work from Madame Bryson, she was French. And Claudia Bryson was a lovely lady, uh, very sweet-natured, and she had come from Paris. And she sort of took me under her wing. Well, they all did, these ladies, like they was giving me 
bits of Polish sausage and potato cake and everything <laughs> like this, like old ladies do to young boys. And um, but Madame Bryson really sort of gave me a lot of well, not attention, but listening to her talking about working in Paris in the 1930s and 40s when she was there and she just happened to and she wasn't really name dropping but she said that she had worked for Christian Dior and I was like wow you know at that stage it wasn't Dior big company it was Christian Dior so yes. she was working for him and she said that she made design some of the hats for the Christian Dior 47 new look and for me, as who two years earlier had been studying fashion at college, and in that we had to do a history of fashions, and I was just absolutely blown away that this woman, you know, is telling me that she had worked not just for Christian Dior, but with Christian Dior, the man himself, helping him to design and make that, the new look, which was an iconic period of fashion. I was just like, wow. And she was very generous with her... Um, knowledge and her. Was she um, still making hats within the workroom, or she was more? Oh yeah, she was working in Mitzi Lorenz as one of the designers. Yes. So, but then after about a year at Mitzi's, I started to feel a bit bored, thinking this is getting a bit repetitive, and I didn't feel as though I was. Although this was model work, it wasn't top-notch yes. stuff. And I, was, you know, I said to her, um, "I'm thinking Eager of going somewhere else. Could yes. you tell me anywhere else?" To go to and, and she said well there this is the 1980s in in london and she said well there are three the three best places are freddie fox mm -hmm. um graham smith or philip somerville yes. so i would go with one of them well i'd never heard of philip somerville i'd heard of freddie fox by then and i'd heard of graham smith graham smith did the most beautiful work with parabontal freddie was very famous for making hats for the Queen at that stage. So I thought, right, well, I'll go to one place, and if I don't get in there, I'll get to the next. So first call was Philip Somerville, and Mr Somerville was out in the afternoon. He'd gone to Luton, and the the lady there just said, well, come back later on in the day. So um, back I went, and he just said, well, you know, come in and join the workroom and start on Monday sort of thing. So... That's how I started with Philip Somerville. So I started again in the workroom yes. as an apprentice. That workroom was much bigger. There was about 15 people there. But they were all, again, majority of them are old ladies. So I, it was strange because there were two or three other younger people there. Um, but you really did feel that you caught on to the, the tail end of a dying way of working mm -hmm. where... You were doing model millinery, so everything was done by hand. We were always using Spartra and the best quality straws, and we were lots of feathers and flowers and um, fur. There, it was great because, again, they had ladies that were good at certain... They all had their own speciality. All these different types of different techniques were all going on under one workroom. Some of the work was done outwork, so we would do the sample and then send it out to the um, outworkers. But it gave me, I was very lucky to be exposed to doing all these different techniques. Um, so we weren't just making fur hats, we weren't just making turbans, like some houses just were specialised in some things. Um, 
And also, because I was about the youngest in the work in the company, Mr. Somerville used to get me to run and get get me this, get me that. So I'd up in the show in the workroom, and he would get me to go to the stockroom and get all the feathers and this, mm -hmm. and take them down to the work to the stock uh, showroom to show, show customers and things. So, and that way, I managed to get to meet people like the buyers. At this stage, we were doing a lot of wholesale. So we were working with Harrods, Selfridges, Harvey Nichols, Liberty. But also we were working with the overseas buyers from Saks Fifth Avenue, Bergdorf Goodman, David Jones. And we had Japanese buyers and people from Sweden. Um, we were doing a lot of export. And then slowly, we started to do retail as well, bit by bit. Some of the, and we started to get a lot of Jewish ladies coming in. And Jewish ladies are very um, good because they need hats for for synagogue. For, uh, so there was no shop front at that. No shop front at that stage. No, it was all um, people had to make an appointment and just come into the, the just the salon. We started to work with a lot with the dress designers, and that's how we started to work with the Queen because certain people like Hardy Amis and Norman Hartnell, first of all, would again come to us and say, we need, can you make this with the Queen? And somebody else would design it, or we would work, we would design it and they would take it to the Queen. Yes. And eventually she changed, um, she got a new designer and he introduced Mr. Sandville directly to the Queen. So that was how we started to work with the Queen. And the first hat we made directly for the Queen was the King of Spain came to visit. And so there was this outfit that, that this designer made, John Anderson his name was, and we did the hat for the Queen directly, which was very exciting. And then of course, once you've got the Queen, then it, it opens up to lots of other things. So we, we were very lucky doing the Queen. And then of course, Diana, we did a lot of work with Princess Diana. And she was a very different, obviously, from the Queen. The Queen was much older, and Diana was much younger. And so, again, I I was, because I was about the same sort of age as Diana, yes. Mr. Sullivan and I used to go and visit her and work together. And she was um, very refreshing to work with. And she gave us sort of free, free reign to work with her. So we did a lot of work for her tours when she went to Australia or South um, Africa or America or there was another one, the Far East, the Middle East when she went. And that was amazing working with with clients like that and having sketching and working again with the dress designer. So how we used to get with the dress designer would send us a sample of the fabric together with a sketch for the princess or the queen and we would make a two or three samples yes. for her to try on and then she would t make a choice and we would make a make it for her first fitting so then we would always go to her we would never she would never very rarely would the sometimes diana would come but the queen never we always went to the queen yes. but i can remember the first time meeting the queen was standing outside this door knowing the other side of the door you know oh god you know i made this conscious sort of awareness that god this is biggest part of my career that and she was very very small the queen but it was a a very you know i was very lucky and the exposure that i'd had in the past working with these other ladies gave me a great 
well, I was just very fortunate to have got into that type of model workroom before that. It's, it's a lot of that way is, is gone now. And I think there's very few people left that witnessed working in those, those ways. But working with clients like that, and that goes back to how I was at college, where I was always working with clients where you were working for the whole outfit. Yes. So I've always done a lot more of special occasions. So you're talking about things for weddings or ascot or bar mitzvahs. And that was the nice thing about working with Diana, that it would be a sort of a team effort where yes. we were obviously she was very aware of the impact that she was going to have when she came off that plane wearing a certain hat or whatever. Yes and that was very clear in her decision making that th those were something that was going to be watched and how people yes. might respond. Yes it took, it took her a, a, a while but once she became confident we were the first people that got her into big hats before she'd started off very small hats but I remember when the first hat we, one of the first hats she made, so she was like gasped and said, oh my goodness, it fits, because she had a, a large head fitting. And so she was actually pleased that, because she'd always been to somewhere like Harrods and bought something off the peg. Yes. And then when she started to have clothes made to measure, it was just like, oh my goodness, this is lovely that things fit. And that's one of the things that I always have been taught that you know it's, it's not just about the look of something it's also got to be comfortable so, so working from philip somerville and being his right hand man in those situations uh how did you progress from there into when did you start making pieces of your own and your own design when i first started at somerville there was two or three designers so i was literally just one of the um lumps you know the apprentices and it was only really when Mr. Sumbler had seen that I had done sketches that he, he literally said, okay, have a go. And he let me make a hat. I do remember making this black felt hat, which was, that came out very long, very short and very sort of strange, but it sold. He put it in the showroom yes. and I was just like, my God, Harrods had bought it. I mean, and then he let me do gradually more and more, but gradually he gave, he was very generous with, um, me. But that's how he worked and that's how lots of designers do work. It's where they get different people's inputs to get a, a whole collection with different looks. And the thing is with hats, which I've learned, is that when you've got in cli private clients and one woman may come in with a Chanel outfit and another client may come in with a Valentino outfit or a Moschino outfit, well all those different looks are very different. As a milliner you've got to be able to pull out, have all those different things that something will go with Chanel, something to go Moschino, something that will go with Armani. So you have to have lots of different looks. If you, gone are the days where you can just be like a dictator and say, this is the fashion for this season, this is what you are wearing. Those days are gone, where now it's all very different, and which I think is good because some people look good in tailored things, some people look better in unstructured things. But it's something that I learned that you always have to have certain different shapes or styles and sizes for everybody. Because they, uh, when somebody walks in the door and says, um, hats don't suit me. Well, that's, that's just, they just haven't found the right shape. Yes, and they haven't seen the right person to help them find well, Exactly, that. yes. It's a matter of trying on. And you do have to build up a relationship with your clients that, that they trust you. 
But Mr. Somerville, I learned, was a very good salesman and gradually he became, he was always very good, he preferred just the selling and uh, but he knew when something work, would work and not. He, he gave me more and more free reign, which was lovely to be working for somebody where they're paying bills. I can basically go and do what I like. And so uh, he was, you know, we would go on buying trips to Paris or Italy. But also, again, it exposed me to Paris couture, which was, to me, I just think it, it is amazing because there was one place where we used to go, it was Maison Michel. And Maison Michel used to um, make the, all the hats for catwalks, catwalk shows. So they would work with lots of different houses, like Chanel or Dior or whatever, but they would be the workroom where everybody would go and see when Mr. Somerville was with Michel, I often would be sitting there waiting in the workrooms. And I can remember one day I got there a little bit early before Mr. Somerville did, and the workrooms were absolutely manic because they were getting ready for the catwalk shows. And I can remember they were making hats for Christian Lacroix. And they were strip straw uh, hats, very large, great big Breton hats, but they were made of the, the strip straw was gold. Yes. So it was amazing, sort of bronze gold colour. And, so, uh, and I just felt really bad that um, there's me, another pair of hands, and they're all rushing around. So I said, you know, do you want any help? Can I help you? And so they just shoved me a box of labels and these hats, and I was found myself stitching these labels for Christian Lacroix, and I was just like, anything, woo, I'm doing yes. Christian Lacroix. Um, but you know, that's just stitching a label. But it did make me feel that having a little bit of a touch of that atmosphere, of that um, working in those, those environments, which um, was very good. But a lot of this all happened very, it was nothing planned. Like, like I say, when Diana, literally how we got Diana was apparently she saw a TV advert of a chocolate bar. And in, that cho in this advert was one of our hats. The girl was wearing one of our hats and she phoned up Vogue or somewhere and said, can you find out who, wow. that, who made that hat? That was an amazing time because whatever Diana wanted, a lot of people followed suit. So would you but find it, that the clients coming in would walk in and say, I want Diana's not necessarily, hat? Or? No, not necessarily the same hat as Diana, but if she went to a certain designer, then other people would come to that designer. Um, it would open up the overseas market for selling and things. So if the Queen comes to a company or the Diana, you know, it means that for trade, for business, it's very good. So yes, we did, there were knockoffs of that. If we, we made a Jackie Kennedy pillbox for Diana and then one of the stores asked us, they said, right, we want to do a chain, a, a little range. Can you do a, a range for us, similar to the one that you did for Diana, but to sell in our department store? So we did. So it had a knock-on effect of, so I've always worked with a lot of with private clients, but special customers, um, but that's always been my background. And so it's always been sort of hands-on working with, I suppose I've been spoiled, working with, you know, beautiful fabrics and lovely colours and things. Used to do business. And also having had that little bit of a taste of that in my past. Um, and I, I tend to stick to that, but try and bring it to a modern... Um, contemporary feel so I know that when I've sort of a few years ago when 
I first said about thermoplastics and things like that. I was, oh, you know, these are the new fabrics and things I really ought to start thinking about using, things like that. But then part of me sort of said, well, it's a, it goes against my ethos that I've always been brought up to use traditional methods and uh, natural fibres and things like that. So to then start using plastics or something like that, which um, also, also against the these days with the climate change and things like that, people aren't wanting plastic hats. So... Um, so you've chosen not, do you have an... I, I don't process? think, I think it goes against, it sort of contradicts yeah. I'm, what I teach and how I operate. Yeah. Um, so I prefer, now that the, for example, the, the Spartra that we used to use, now it's become available, but in a paper version, but the, the similar technique of working with it and the results you get it was like wow this is like an old friend being reunited because we had always used spartra when we when i started but then it stopped being made so we then had to find alter alternative fabrics to use as foundations how long did it disappear for and what did you use in the in the interim i suppose it must have stopped in about 1990s so. but yes we used tried we tried using a lightweight buckram or straw or felt or canvas, tailoring canvases and things like that. Some of which worked for certain fabrics, but to a certain extent, once you've used, once you've started the spark, you, you, it's, um, if you've used it, you'll understand what I mean. A lot of, when I first started teaching students using Spartra, they, I was like ranting and raving, and like, oh, this is brilliant fabric, but some of the students were like, what's so special? But then, after a while, they then came back and said, actually, I really like this stuff. I see what you mean. When did you start teaching? I started teaching when I was still in Philip Somerville in about 2006, I think, something like that. I was just asked to do some evening classes. One of the, um, Maria Reagan, she used to teach at London College of Fashion. She was doing a lot of teaching then, and she said, um, would you be interested in doing just three hours a week for six weeks or something like that? Then Carol Denford asked me, you know, I think about 2009, she said um, somebody had contacted her who had a, a chateau in France and she said, um, would you, you've done teaching before, would you want to do some teaching for Lizzie in, in France? So, um, and then gradually it sort of built up and built up. So. It, but I, I like it. I like the still working with the private clients, yes. so I'm still getting a bit, but also doing some teaching. Um, teaching can be very re rewarding, especially when you see, you see the progress of their journey. Sometimes there was one girl that I saw and she, she came to me at the Chateau, Chateau du Mans in France and she had one lesson with me and she said, oh, I'm really enjoying this. I'm going to come back every year and have lessons with you. Wow. I was like, okay, fair enough. Um, and after about five years, I just said to her, you've, you've turned a corner, you've really got it. You, and I was, it, was, it was so nice to see that she had found her, her own style, her own signature. And that is something that I think is so rewarding when initially when People used to come to me and say, I want to do this hat, like this Philip Tracy hat. I, you're a beginner, you know, this is, let's start it, 
let's learn the basics let's learn techniques first and then you can start to go on and you know don't try and copy um you can use it as an inspiration but um and I always sort of say, well, go to one teacher and go to another one and go, and then you'll find by doing different fabrics, different techniques, you know, whether you're doing one person's way of working with felt or another, some people do the same, you know, working with the same fabric, but in different ways. But you, by doing different classes, something will suit you more than the other. And so you were still at Philip Summer Bull in, what was that, 2006? When no. did that start to... When did you finish up with him, or how did that end? Somerville finished in 2008 or 9. Um, that went into uh, liquidation. Was he still involved? Was yes, still yes. Involved? Um, he had sold the business two years earlier. Unfortunately, well, because by that stage, the company, Philip Somerville Limited, had a royal warrant. The royal warrant was to to Mr. Somerville himself, not the company. Yes. So in a situation like that, Mr. Somerville, because he was awarded the royal warrant personally, he had to stay as a member of the company as a director in order for the warrant to remain with that company. Um, and the Queen can take the royal warrant away at any stage, whether a person is in it or not, even if it's just a company. We had a very good client list by that stage. We had worked with two or three royal ladies, both English and uh, the Queen of Sweden, Queen of Spain and um, Queen of Greece, as well as Queen Elizabeth and the Princess Diana, Duchess of Kent. So we had lots of very good clients, but I don't think they realised just how valuable that client list was. Anyway, so that closed in 2009, after which time I thought, maybe this is time for me to change career. I've been doing this all my life. I had made a lot of contacts, a lot of buyers and lots of designers I'd worked with and I thought about doing something like custom private personal shopping and things like that. But then Harrods contacted me and said, you know, Philip Somerville, the closing of Philip Somerville, they said you've, you've left a gap in the market. There is a certain type of hat that we need and we sell. We had a very good sell-through in Philip Somerville. If you do start up, let us know because we'd be very interested in buying. I was like, wow, that's not bad to start off on your that's own good. and already having Harrods um, offering to buy the things. So I, I did start. I was a little bit wary, first of all, because I'd always worked for somebody else. And But again, because I had been working with Mr. Somerville in the showroom, I had met the wholesale buyers and I had met the private clients. I was very lucky that I could contact the private clients that we had because we had very loyal private clients and they would keep coming back. Did they have the relationship directly with you as a private client when they came into the studio? Well, if Mr. Somerville wasn't there, I would often be there or often he was there, I would be assisting him. Yes. So, uh, yes. and. and I was very lucky that several of the clients that used to come to Philip Somerville continued um, to see me. And I still do work with several of the clients that I've known for, you know, 20 years now. Harrods, Harrods I, don't, I don't do hardly any wholesale now. Yes. And this is something partly, I can remember Mr Somerville used to enrage me actually because 
some people's always worked with the in the salon he would have a, a sample and sell from that sample so he would show a customer the sample yes. and then he'd explain that well i can make this a navy blue and it will change the trimming or make it bigger but we would use that sample to copy in the workroom so if he copied if he sold the sample then it left us without anything to copy but we would have all the uh, details of that style in our own notebooks and photographs um, things so they would be on record but often if a customer came in and said I want that hat and I'll give you cash now he would sell it and I'd be in I would get really quite frustrated because I was at that stage I was in charge of the work making sure that work was going through and I said, no, what do we get a copy? He said, it doesn't matter. I've sold something for cash. It's cash flow. You'll understand about it later. Um, so he would rather sell something for cash and get that money straight into the pocket rather than sell it for wholesale. Yes. So cash, you're going to get something for, I don't know, £400 for it. Whereas if you sell it for wholesale, you're going to get £150. Same yes. amount of work. So, And that's a similar sort of thing that now I'd much rather the amount of work and paperwork and trouble working with wholesale if it's a big department store like Harrods or David Jones you've got to ticket it all and send it all up to the um, department store and everything and work a lot more further in advance and for the same amount of work and you're going, your, your return is very little compared with if you're working with a private client you're seeing you're seeing that personal getting that personal um, contact and again dressing that whole client whereas before it's a bit cold doing wholesale because you don't know the customer. So now in your work do you will you allow someone to walk out with the the, sound, <laughs> the, the, the piece from your workroom or will you insist that you produce them a new one? I would I'd rather them have something made partly because it may have been tried on. Oh, yeah. No, if somebody wants to buy it, like especially if it's two or three days before our ascot, I've had two yes. or three customers turn up literally and they want to wear something tomorrow. So if it's right, if that's what they want and they want it, yes, I will sell it. But usually I, um, I make to order. So yes. do you create a range for your clients each season or how do you work with presenting that to them? Um, I think I've changed. I used to make far more because of doing more wholesale I would always make sure that there were certain things in each cost in each collection to tick various like we always had to have a pillbox we always had to have a big brim we might have to have a breast on certain shapes always had to be there um, and again to suit various you think oh yes Harrods like something and then you might do something a little bit more extravagant like we would first of all do the collection something and then do a few extra ones for Ascot so Harrods would come back um, in March or April to, just to buy two or three dozen Ascot specials. Um, I now work a lot more, I often buy fabric or I go and buy, I go to the fabrics and I'm thinking right I only need navy blue fabric and cream and maybe some pink. Well I always get so distracted or I'm just in love with colours and fabrics and things. I get spoiled. It's like being in a sweet shop and I come away and I've spent far more money than I've done. But it inspires me just seeing the fabrics and the colours. Yes. Um, so often it might take me two or three days to work out exactly what I'm doing. And I've, got, I've always got various things that I've started 
and they either I'll hit a wall and I'm like no it's not doing what I imagined it to do but it'll then evolve I'll leave it on a Friday night and come back to it on a Monday and I'll look at it with fresh eyes and either work out how I was originally going to do it or it'll completely change um, so sometimes something that I think is going to be quite a small hat I'll get halfway through it and think no this this isn't working I'm going to put a brim on it doing things that I like and colours and trimmings um, but then also I'm thinking oh yes if a certain customer comes I know there's certain things that I, I'll still need through. to have two or three classic things yeah I need to tick the certain boxes so if a customer comes in and everything is completely over the top they're not going to be able to walk out like often if somebody says have you just I just need a simple black hat for a funeral have you got anything so often I might just do something and have it on standby should somebody need something like that um, and with your background and passion in fashion illustration do you draw the pieces as they come to you or do you start making and working with the materials and the blocks? Uh, well, uh, yeah, I used to do a lot more sketching. Uh, a majority of stuff was sketching and often that was how um, it would work where I would do a sheet of sketches and I would show them Mr Somerville and he would circle the ones, yes do that, do that and also that's how often would work with the Queen, it would send sketches to the Queen and there would certainly be yes do that and do that because with the Queen and Princess Diana we used to make mock-ups especially for the Queen because the Queen is so small you can't use like big blocks like this so you have to scale everything down because she's very petite um, but I don't work like that so much now because often with a sketch it's two-dimensional what works better if you start and work from a block and then work three-dimensionally so that because often what you think is going to work in a sketch, when you actually get to start to make it three-dimensionally, it doesn't work, especially if it's something quite sort of geometric or something like that. The scalers and everything, it's all about, a lot of it is about proportion and scale and shape and everything. So for me, it's much easier to work certainly with blocks and adapt blocks as well. This is something that I've learned that you can go to the block maker and see these weird and wonderful blocks but I always look at a block and think well how much how can I adapt that how much use can I get out of that that's why some of my blocks are so simple but I can make them smaller I can make them you know you know make them into a square brim or diamond shape or whatever you can make them in different fabrics and make them asymmetric and things like that so I'm always trying to utilize and don't have that many blocks if I did I would just be Break, you know, I wouldn't have any money there. Um, but I'm always, when I do look at blocks, I'm always looking at the wearability. They've got to suit people, and that's something that um, I always think is important. That at the end of the day, they somebody's got to be able to wear, they've got to be able to suit certain people, it's got to be flattering. Um, but I also do like drama, I do like a lot of drama, I like to be able to have a, and that's something that now being my own boss, uh, I can just sort of, if, I'm, if I've got time on my hands, I can just play and um, 
but then my mind is always working yes. overtime. And sometimes that's when I do sketch sometimes, especially at late at night. If I suddenly think of something, I've got to sketch it because by tomorrow I'll have forgotten. I'll have come back and like, what was I trying to think of last night? What was it? But if I, even if I just sort of, you know, just write down the block and yeah. um, trims and things like that, just something Get to change. Well. Yeah. Yes. Just to sort of direct my memory that... So we're here in your studio in Brixton. How long have you been here and how have, have you... What's your workspace like for those well, who I can't Well, I started see off it? in Carnaby Street in Soho, um, which was very nice because it was buzzing and... Um, but a lot of my clients weren't happy coming to... They were, you know, quite smart ladies and, they, and also parking was a problem in central London. Um, I then had to, I moved to Fulham, um, which was quite good because a lot of my clients lived in Chelsea and Fulham, um, but it meant that it took me an hour to get there and an hour to get back, and um, so I then moved um, closer to home. So I live South East London, and funny enough it was Bridget, Bridget Bailey that she's in the next building, so she's... I asked her if she knew of anywhere she said in here. So um, uh, it's nearer to home and it's easier to park. Yes, it's a little bit further out of the but as I, I thought the customers wouldn't come, but my clients say, well, is, is it okay to park? No problem. So yes, that, that's, I don't have a shop. You see, lots of people think I have a, a shop, but um, to have a shop these days in central London, Cost of fortune. So with your teaching, what do you have coming up? Well, I mean, lots of people are very happy when I'm teaching the Spartra. So I've been asked to do a lot more teaching the Spartra. I did a Spartra block making course in Sweden in the summer, which was very successful. And so I'll probably be doing something similar to that in America. I've also started to work with Organdi, Cotton Organdi, and just by posting a couple of pictures on Facebook or Instagram, people are like, oh, yes, I want to learn, probably during London Hat Week. And having learned traditional model ways of, I'm going to call it model as opposed to couture, because couture, this is something that came in the interview with Becky um, about couture. Everybody calls themselves couture. Well, in my <laughs> lifespan, I remember everything was model. It was model millinery. You either had ready-to-wear millinery or you had model millinery. Suddenly everybody's couture. Well, couture was always referred to as haute couture for dresses in Paris. So, and sometimes I think, actually, they don't really warrant being called couture, in my eyes. I'm a bit strict, maybe. Um, so that's partly why I call myself couture. I was thinking, well, hell, if they're going to call themselves couture, then I am too. Certainly have the right to. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> but having learnt those traditional, all right, you might say old school or Parisian techniques of working I like to and that's why I'm happy to teach and I'm happy to I get pleasure when I see people enthusiastic if people and that's why I talk a lot often my students may say that I talk a lot or are very generous with my information if I get positive feedback from a students if I know that they're willing to learn or they're interested in what I'm talking about, I feel as though I was very lucky getting into model millinery in the 1980s in London, working with people that had been doing it since the 1930s and 40s, 
coming to the end of their working life, making beautiful butterflies and flowers and feathered pads and all this amazing work that is now dying arts. So I feel to a certain sense, I'm very lucky that I am that bridge between... Um, so I like to keep these skills alive and pass them on, um, but also do it with a, a modern twist. So that's how I'm just always aware that I'm thinking, oh, crikey, do my things look old fashioned? I try not to, but I'm still here after <laughs> so long. I think that's a lovely point to finish on. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of Millinery Info with Dylan. We'd like to thank our Patreon podcast supporters for making this episode possible. Miss Hayden Millinery, the Millinery Association of Australia, Catherine Cherry Millinery, the Hat Academy, the Essential Hat, and Louise McDonald Milliner. You and your business can become a Patreon supporter of this podcast series. There are two levels available. The supporter level gives you access to exclusive content on the website, where a podcast sponsor starts from $15 per month and you receive a thank you in the podcast like this one, a link to your website on each podcast article and a link in our newsletter. You can choose to support us ongoing or for a set period of time. It's a great way to have your business supplies or event heard about in the ears of milliners across the globe. You can keep up to date with the latest podcasts or look back through the past episodes on our website or follow along in your favourite podcast app. If you know someone who might be interested in taking a listen, how about sending them a link to your favourite episode? We hope you've enjoyed this episode with Dylan and we look forward to bringing you another episode soon.